I'm Ivan Agnosolautiris, and we are together with you to listen to one more episode from Tales from the End of Time. We are researchers working on an ARC, an Australian Research Council discovery project, called Crisis of Leadership from the Eastern Roman Empire, 3rd to the 10th century. Today, my PhD student, Jack Hanrahan Shirley, will be talking to Andras Kraft from the University of Vienna, a most reputable scholar who wrote on Byzantine apocalypticism, Byzantine apocalyptic literature, and had a recent stint at the Singer Center for Hellenic Studies at Princeton University. The topic of the episode is going to be dualist deviancy, and they will introduce us to apocalyptic and heresiological traditions from the Byzantine period. Hello, Jack. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for running this wonderful interview with Andras. The two of you really had a lot of fun, apparently, uh, when we had the uh, conference back in December 2021. I know that the uh, Zoom chat was really, uh, you know, hot and lively between the two of you. So this is how we ended up with uh, having this podcast, isn't it? Yes, and uh, yeah, it was very much a lot of fun uh, doing the podcast. I very much enjoyed it. So apocalyptic traditions and heresiology all well and good, and I'm sure that these uh, fanciful words will attract the audience. But let's start with the basics. How would we define the Byzantine Empire? I mean, it's okay to talk about X or Y empire, but when it comes to Byzantium, people's eyes go a bit funny. Yeah, they're like, it's a funny word. What, I- what does this word mean? I don't, I don't know what it is. Uh, oh, you do, Jack. So tell oh, us. <laughs> I, if I was going to give like a layman's uh, description um, in like say five minutes, I'd basically describe it as you have it's the Eastern Roman Empire, and which roughly you know it corresponds with modern day Eastern Europe, like the Balkans and Turkey, and essentially the Middle East and Egypt and North Africa. And it's essentially from, I mean, you know, it, with dating and timings, it's it almost depends on who you ask because, you know, people just love to have different opinions. But uh, essentially it's from, like, Constantine the Great to about the fall of Constantinople in 1453 is, like, the, the Byzantine absolutely, Empire. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the first division, of course, between Eastern and Western Empire happens around 285. Mm. But it is truly a Christian empire, a theocracy, yep. from the time of Constantine onwards. Mm. So, And he's the one who transfers the uh, capital from Rome to Constantinople. Mm. Yep. So there you are. You got it right. Thank you. So let's hear that most interesting uh, interview between you and Andras. Yes, I'm very much looking forward to it. I'm here with Andras Kraft from the University of Vienna. And Andras, I'm really looking forward to uh, us having this discussion with you today. Thank you for inviting me, Jack. 100% my pleasure to have you on. And thank you so much for making the time to talk to us today. To kick things off right away, I would, I guess, wanting to be asked you, particularly in the context of uh, this podcast, about Byzantine apocalypses and how you would define them. And particularly, I guess, for our audience who might not know exactly what Byzantine apocalypses are. And sort of a follow-up question from that, in keeping with the theme of the podcast about the crisis 
and leadership in Byzantium is about how Byzantine apocalypses particularly related to these themes of leadership and crisis. And what, yeah, how particularly did these things interact together? Sure. What is a Byzantine apocalypse? It sounds like an easy question, but I think it's a bit difficult to answer. Now, one could look at possible definitions of what this peculiar genre that we call apocalypse can be defined to be. But um, I think when we look at our medieval Greek sources, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to squeeze all the different examples into a single definition. And I think there are at least two reasons for that. First, there was no school curriculum in antiquity that taught you how to write an apocalypse. When we look at the handbooks of rhetorics by Hermogenes or Menander, we do not find any reference to apocalyptic writing. It was an alien kind of literature to the Greeks. They did not teach it, so there were not really any rules on how to write it. When we look um, to the Byzantine context, when we look at the stupendous 10th century encyclopedia called the Suda, we find a single reference to the word apocalypse. And that is under the rubric of the Apostle John, who is said to have written the word called the apocalypse. Now, I mention this because the term apocalypse itself was not often used in Byzantium when they referred to revelatory visions. The term was often used, um, the term that was often used was called orasis, a vision, or chismos. An oracle, propheteo was used, um, prophecy, and a few other terms. But apocalypse, apocalypsis, was rather um, sparely used. The second reason why Byzantine apocalypses, I think, are hard to press into any kind of definition is because of its very nature, the very nature of this literature, which is supposed to be a visionary experience that is virtually untranslatable into conceptual language. We repeatedly find in our sources um, the caution, the warning that what has been written down does not really fully correspond to the marvel of the vision itself. Now, if we take this warning seriously, and I think we should, then we can hardly expect any rigid conceptual rules for a kind of text that professes to go beyond or come beyond conceptual rigor. So maybe um, the genre of apocalyptic literature should not be defined along classical conceptual, if you want, Aristotelian lines of what a definition um, is often supposed to be. Instead, what is an apocalypse? I would propose to approach this differently. I would approach this by looking at particular texts, examples of the genre, examples that were treated as prototypes, as paradigms. And I think this is what the Byzantines themselves must have been, must have been doing. Since there was no definition they could look up, the thing they could do is looking at authoritative text, authentic text that taught them how a good, genuine apocalypse looked like. And it was, coming to your second question, the, time, the, the point of um, leadership um, and crisis, it was, I think, these paradigm texts, that can be discussed what exactly which these paradigm texts are, but these texts were paradigmatic in defining and shaping the notion of what good and bad leadership looks like, how to handle a crisis. Now, with regard to imperial leadership, I would say that the apocalyptic tradition in Byzantium was inherently ambivalent with regards to the emperor, the imperial leader. Any emperor could be a proto-messiah, but he could also be a proto-antichrist. 
He could be good and he could be evil. Now you may, you may think this is very trivial, of course, a, a ruler can be good and evil, but it's not only trivial, it also derives from a profound tension from within these paradigm texts. So going back on what's been said before about these paradigm texts, so what would you say were the key texts that the Byzantines would base their understanding of apocalypses on, if you could call them understandings? What were those texts that Byzantines would have looked to for inspiration when thinking about or writing an apocalyptic text or the apocalypse? Well, I think that, let's say, maybe the main five texts which um, define the literary and aesthetic expectations in terms of language and um, imagery, st- structure and concepts like, like, like leadership were um, definitely the book of Daniel, the biblical book of Daniel, especially the chapters 2 and 7, then the so-called synoptic apocalypse, that is the chapters of the first three gospels that deal with the end of times, that is Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, and um, definitely the so-called Apocalypse of Pseudomethodius that you're well familiar with, um, which is a 7th century text, which became very influential in Byzantium as, a, as well as elsewhere in the West and further East. In Byzantium, the oracles of Leo the Wise were also extremely popular and influential. It's a very complicated text tradition, which may go down, which may go back to the 9th century, and um, my all-time favorite is the so-called Last Vision of Daniel, which is a 13th-century text, which became extremely popular in the Paleologian and then into the, in, in the post-Byzantine period. A very influential text. Now, the tension that I mentioned um, before, the inherent tension in Byzantine apocalyptic literature, is that the biblical text, um, Daniel and others, are dismissive were at least highly skeptical of worldly dominion. While the Byzantine apocalypse, the apocalypse of Pseudomethodius, the last vision of Daniel and others, they endorse worldly dominion. Now, as you know, apocalyptic thought was originally, that is in Old Testament times, anti-imperial. It was forcefully opposed to the establishment and its oppressive regime. Now, when the Byzantines tried to accommodate this revolutionary potentially, when they tried to, let's say, tame it, they really tried to, in a sense, square a circle. What they ended up with was an ambivalent tradition that we call imperial eschatology. It essentially says that, yes, the emperor and the establishment can be wicked, but it can also be salvific. It can advance the salvation of the elect people, the new Israel, that is, the Eastern Romans. So the anti-imperial tradition and the anti-imperial elements are retained and redirected at specific individuals. The key here is individuals. While the institution of the emperorship, imperial leadership itself, was exonerated. In a sense, Byzantine imperial eschatology is the inversion of the Reformation. Or the Reformation is the inversion of Byzantine imperial eschatology. Um, The Reformation claimed that it was the institution itself, the institution of the papacy in the Western case, not individual popes that are corrupt, that are the Antichrist. In contrast, Byzantine imperial eschatology held that it wasn't the institution that was wicked, 
it was individual emperors that were corrupt. One way to, to diffuse and tame the revolutionary potential of the apocalyptic tradition. Now, these paradigm texts that I've mentioned, um, they had tremendous influence on literature, as well as on political decision-making, as you can imagine, because these prophecies were talking about the history of the future, and they were taken more or less seriously. They revealed current events, um, the significance of current events, and how they fit into the big picture of universal history. Now, as a side note, I should mention another subgenre of apocalyptic literature. As you know, apocalypses are not only concerned with history. They're also texts that deal with the fate of the soul after death. These are called non-historical or moral apocalypses. And here, important text um, may be the Apocalypse of Paul, an apocryphal writing that didn't make it into the Bible, a late antique text. And from the Middle Byzantine period, one should mention maybe the Apocalypse Anastasia um, and the apocalyptic sections in the hagiographic work called The Life of Basil the Younger, a 10th century text. Now, these texts give the reader or the listener um, insights into what to expect after death, especially with regard to specific punishments, the specific punishments that go for specific sins. And these texts are replete with torture scenes in hell, which, which was a way to persuade the audience to reform the reputedly wicked lifestyle. Now, what about heresiology, Jack? What are the most important texts um, when it comes to your field, when it comes to heresy in Byzantium? And what do these texts, these, these prototypes, texts, what do they say about the notion of leadership? Well, I think it's very interesting that when we think about what are the basic texts on heresy that inform Byzantine writers, later Byzantine writers on heresy, you have to go back essentially to the early church and the writings of the early church fathers that are fundamentally very influential in the Byzantine and indeed Latin and essentially the entirety of Christendom's understanding of heresy itself and what it is and how heresy relates to things such as crisis and leadership. Um, and so an example of this would be how later Byzantine intellectuals, they looked towards these late earlier texts, such as Epiphanes of Salamis and Irenaeus of Lyon, and how they consciously sought to mimic these earlier texts because they were seen as being the exemplars of what it meant to uh, tackle uh, heretical groups and heretical sects who were against the true church. And you see this also in their relations of uh, crisis and leadership. So, for example, you have the Emperor Constans II when he embraces uh, Arianism, so an early heresy. He's called a, uh, an antichrist by Athanasius, the Bishop of Alexandria. And you have various uh, 
social immoralities linked to heretics such as incest and plagiarism and all the all and sundry sort of aspects of behaviour which were considered immoral. So specifically in relation to the Bogomils, in terms of heresy, crisis and leadership, there are a number of ways that we see these connections going on and particularly in how uh, these Byzantine writers who are discussing the Bogomils link their um, who they're currently talking about to earlier texts from church fathers and so on, as I mentioned previously. So, for example, you have the uh, one of the texts that I have looked at recently. It talks about the Bogomils and their uh, satanic rituals and uh, worship of Satan and incestuous orgies and all these sorts of uh, horrible things which we sh- which shouldn't be done by any good uh, sane people. And you also have um, direct linkages to earlier texts in the construction of these, you could almost describe them as heretical genealogies. So, for example, in uh, the earlier texts, you have heretics being described as these people are clearly from an earlier heretical group because of the similarities in their doctrine. And this uh, construction of almost a family lineage is carried over into texts discussing the Bogomils. So, for example, you have them directly linked with uh, the Manichaeans because to the uh, writers, their doctrines are seen as being similar. And so that's almost good enough to uh, forge a connection. And in terms of uh, their relationship to uh, crisis and legitimacy, well, heretics themselves were seen as the embodiment of a crisis. Uh, you could say social, uh, ecclesiastical or, or church-related and uh, political as well. So an example of this would be where you had these heretics in Asia Minor during the reign of Justinian II. And Justinian II, as a good emperor, orders the heretics to be executed because they are a threat to not only the good practice of the church, but also to the state's role as upholding the true orthodoxy of the period. So, yeah, I think it's just really amazing the amount of detail and exploration that you can see has gone into how these various Byzantine authors from across a large span of time put effort into constructing the relationships uh, between heretics and how heresy influenced and thinking about heresy influenced a whole bunch of topics from uh, political and and social. Yeah, it's very interesting and very uh, intriguing. And so moving on to methodology, because as always, methodology is very important and we would be amiss if we didn't talk about it. So when assessing methodology of Byzantine apocalypses, what do you think is the best way I guess I would say to approach assessing 
apocalypses as literature and as guides into how Byzantines thought about particular things, such as the end of the world. Um, what is your, I guess, opinion on the methodology question? I would, I would approach that question as follows. The methodology that I would propose to apply should be a response to the limitations that we face because of the text themselves, because of our distance to the authors or the audience. So I think there are like three main challenges that we face, three key aspects that I might want to point out to work towards a methodology. Um, it's still a work in progress. So three key aspects or three maybe actual keys to unlock the strange but compelling literature we call Byzantine apocalypses. And um, I think these three challenges or three keys are topology, transmission, and dualism. Now let me begin with a word on typology, which goes back to what you were just saying about heresiology. Um, all apocalypses, as you know, are eschatological in outlook. It is the look towards the end of the world and what happens shortly before and shortly thereafter. The more the author looks into the future, that is, the more he moves away from his present moment, the more he has to rely on looking backwards into history. Predictions are by nature inverted histories. This means that apocalyptists look at key events in salvation history of the past when they predict key events of the future. And the underlying idea, the theory, the theology behind this is called typology. It is an exegetical practice, how to read the Bible. It comes from the Old Testament, especially was implemented in the New Testament. Um, and it is also a theory of history. It holds that events of salvation history, or the New Testament characters and events, are connected to people and events in the present and in the future. History is seen as a web of interlinked correspondences. And that's why, as you said, heresiologists would turn back to earlier works in order to interpret current events. Because in the mind frame of a typologically thinking believer, there is not really anything new under the sun. In the sense that the phenomenon that they face in terms of heresies is a reinstantiation a more acute actualization of an earlier prototype. Um, maybe one of the famous examples in biblical exegesis is that Adam corresponds to Christ. The Byzantines continued this typological correspondence by saying, okay, Adam was the prototype of Christ, and Christ is the prototype of the Byzantine emperor. And the Byzantine emperor is the prototype of then the returning Christ at the second parousia, at the, at the final coming, at the second coming. Typology permeates every kind of um, literature that is historically oriented, apocalypses, historiography, and also heresiology. Um, the key is to understand which typologies a given text chooses and focuses on. One example, um, I mentioned the Apocalypse of Pseudomethodius, that very important text for medieval apocalypticism. It constructs a number of different typologies. And... One of the more straightforward ones is it mentions the Old Testament leader, Gideon. Gideon, who in the book, um, the biblical book of Judges, defeats a group of Arab nomads 
who are called the Midianites. Now, these Midianites are presented in this Apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius as a typological uh, precursor, as the forerunner of the 7th century Arabs, whom a new Gideon, a Byzantine emperor, is said to defeat in the near future. So the message is what worked for Gideon centuries ago will work for a new Gideon today. And one has to understand these typological layers in heresiology and I think also in apocalypses in order to understand what the work actually tries to convey, what message it tries to make. For biblically, for biblically literate audience, which we today are not anymore, these typological layers were almost apparent. We have to reconstruct that. So that is a challenge. Now, when reading these typologies in the sources, we have to take into consideration one peculiar circumstance um, of the material of Byzantine apocalypses, and that is that the manuscript transmission is very late. Most of the manuscripts that give us these Byzantine texts, prophecies, um, apocalypses, oracles, they come from the post-Byzantine period, 15th, 16th, 17th century. And there are a number of reasons for this. I think there's definitely state sponsorship to be blamed for that, as well as an ecclesiastical aversion towards anything apocalyptic, which has, again, the revolutionary potential has to be tamed. And as a result, we have a late manuscript transmission. This means that when we read an apocalypse, we have to be always cautious and to ask ourselves, is this topology, is this passage actually from the Middle Ages or was it composed, was it interpolated, was it inserted in the early modern period? And this matters greatly when we want to date and contextualize a given text. And a third aspect when it comes to how to read apocalypses methodologically, how to approach them, I think we should point towards dualism. Apocalypses envision a strict dualistic arrangement of the world, a struggle between two factions, good and evil, the oppressed minority and the oppressing majority. What this means is that when we read apocalypses, what we are facing is a sort of caricature. The antagonist and the enemy is always exaggerated. It is simplified. So we need to read these descriptions with a pinch of salt. But I think I should qualify this because apocalyptic literature is dualistic and simplistic, but it is so in a moderate way. It is moderately dualistic. The evil that exists is only in existence for the time being. It's a temporary temporary phenomenon. Ultimately, there will be, again, the good, which will prevail. The apocalyptic mindset is opposed to Gnosticism. Gnosticism, which is a radical dualism, which would say that the world itself, from the beginning to the end, is inherently corrupt. The apocalyptus opposes this and says, no, the world is not corrupt. There is corruption in the world, but it's like a hiccup, a hiccup of history. It eventually will pass away and it will be reconstituted. So apocalypticism is dualistic, but in a moderate way. And I think this is an important, an important difference from radical dualistic um, movements like Gnosticism or like Bogomilism, which is your specialty. Now, Jack, what would you say does Bogomilism say about the evil in this world? Well, it's really looking, it's really interesting looking at uh, particularly 
the Cathars and the relationship with the Bogomils and, and sort of the Cathars, whilst this hasn't been, I guess, definitively proven and you can only in a way speculate about the Cathars as an extension of uh, the dualist heresies into uh, Western Europe from the Byzantine Empire. But you see in the available sources, at least, a almost a divergence or, or a, a schism over time from a mitigated dualism, which is more in a sense of the physical world is evil and God is good, but yet God is sovereign over the whole of creation. And then you have the radical dualism, which goes to the other end of the table, which has a belief that there are two uh, two almost gods that are equal but separate, that you have one good god of spirit and light and then you have one evil god of the uh, physical creation and matter. So an example, I guess, of this divergence would be um, in the sources that discuss uh, Bogomil teaching in the 10th and 11th centuries, you have an emphasis on the Trinity itself being made up of God, Christ, and Satan. And whilst Satan is the one who is seen as the creator of the physical world, and so therefore the physical world is evil, God is still uh, superior to Satan. He is still the overlord of Satan in the um, grand scheme of things. Whereas on the other hand, you have in a Cathar text from the 13th century, which is sort of aptly named uh, On the Two Principles, it, in seeking almost to shield God from accusations that he is the author of evil, uh, postulates that you have... Uh, one or you have one good God and you have one evil God and they have always been a war. They have eternally been um, opposed to each other. And so how do you think, Andrash, that apocalypses in Byzantium related to the evil of the world, how do you think they tried to, I guess, explain the dichotomy between the good father in heaven and the fact that we live in a world which mm-hmm. is obviously sinful and broken. So, for example, the Arabs are invading and taking away our territory and all these horrible things are happening. And, yeah, I guess how would you describe apocalypses attempting to explain this reality? The old question of theodicy, how can God be evil and still, um, um, I mean, how, how can there exist evil in the world and God still be just and good? The old question of theodicy. Apocalypses give a different picture, completely different from, from the one you just depicted. Um, they're dualist, but different kind of dualist. So... I think their answer, it's not as explicit. You have to pretty much um, reconstruct the ideas um, from the text. The basic 
idea, I believe, is that there is a counterbalancing act of goodness. Whatever evil there is in this world, eventually, if not now, then later, in the hereafter, there's going to be compensation. Um, whatever evil there is in this world, apocalypses propose a corresponding compensation in the, in the near future. Um, let me give you a few examples of this. Um, in Byzantium, as in so many other societies, social inequalities persisted. Byzantine apocalypses, what they propose is to remedy these social inequalities by proposing a future of social equality. A middle Byzantine apocalypse, um, that is in some manuscripts attributed to the 12th century patriarch Leo Stipis, gives a good account of this. Um, it describes radical equality that will result from the resurrection. And if you let me, I would quote a Greek, um, a passage from, from a Greek, from, from the Greek text to give a sense of what an apocalypse would have sounded like and then give a, give a rough translation. So the Greek text reads as follows. Tote evrethison de pandes gymni, ose kyrios eplacenton adam. Pandes anastison de mielikia, oli isokephali, oli triakon de eton. Uden gnorisus in alilis epitiafti theoria. Ute epigignoski paterion, ute jos patera. Diotie kimithisan aligerondas, alineike alipedia. Kelipon ugnorisus in alilis, imimonen idikei. Kerftiochia put in theoria taftin, aluapo dioraticon omatis psychis. Ida mortuli, que tutus tenon de diotos cotos discolasios, que tot egerthison de olisi. Now, this passage can be roughly translated as follows that the dead will all find themselves naked as the Lord created Adam. That means all will arise with the same age, all will be like headed, and all 30 years old. And they do not recognize each other because of this sight of equality. Neither the father recognizes the son, nor the son recognizes the father, since some died when old, some others when young, and others when they were children. So they do not recognize each other, except for the righteous ones, who do not use the visual sight, but the clear-sighted eye of their soul. The sinners will greatly deplore this because of the darkness of the punishment, but all will rise equal, end quote. Now what this passage seems to say is that the dissolution of this world will go hand in hand with the obliteration of physical difference. All will be equal in appearance. Everyone will have the same head, literally, isocephalos, they will all look alike. Age and gender disappears. Radical equality will become a torture for the sinners because they don't recognize their beloved ones. While the righteous ones, they will be able to recognize each other because they have a certain inner vision. Hell is depicted as the experience of living in a radical state of equality, where everyone is anonymized and indistinguishable. Heaven, in contrast, is living in a moderate state of equality, where some personal identity is retained. Now, if I understand this passage correctly, then what it says is that life after death is a state of equality. Some find it pleasurable, some find it awkward. The notion of hell and heaven is retained. As you referred earlier, hell is also important for Bogomils, it's also important for your apocalypticists. But the underlying notion here is that equalities will vanish because um, inequalities will vanish and um, a permanent state of equality will ensue. 
as a compensation for the current inequalities. Similarly, apocalyptic writings are emphatic on the notion of the redistribution of, of wealth. In a world where resources are repeatedly scarce, redistribution is very important. It is a notion that is connected to compensation and retribution, and is very important in the apocalyptic genre, as it was supposedly in daily life in Byzantium. I mentioned earlier the last vision of, of Daniel, that 13th century text that became very influential in late Byzantium and thereafter. Now, the last vision of Daniel foretells a period of great prosperity that will occur just before the last judgment, when, and here I quote again, all will be rich and no one will be poor. The earth will give its fruit hundredfold and the weapons of war will turn into prunning hooks, unquote. That, that notion of weapons of war will turn into prunning hooks and plowshares is the famous quote from Isaiah 2.4. Now, when we keep on reading, the prosperity that is given here to the elect, to the, to the Eastern Romans, goes hand in hand with the deprivation of the enemy. Redistribution of wealth means... The dualism of the apocalyptic genre here means that wealth is taken away from the evil opponent and given to the good ones. A redistribution of wealth, a form of compensation that remedies current afflictions. Now, another important domain, which I mentioned um, before, is to be found in imperial eschatology. It is, as I mentioned, a curious phenomenon, imperial eschatology. It occurs when the establishment in our case, the emperor and his court accommodates or tames the revolutionary potential of the apocalyptic worldview. It does some kind of a Tai Chi move where one uses the opponent's force against them. Imperial eschatology redirects the ferocious criticism that was originally targeted at the establishment, at the emperor, away from itself up in some other enemy, an internal or external enemy, heretics in particular, pagans, Judaizers, um, so-called Ishmaelites, or Bogomils, that you mentioned before. Um, a good example for this, I think, is the work by Anna Komnenyi, her historical work, work called the Alexiad. Now, I've talked so much about apocalypse that I think it is um, only fitting to have a brief word about historiographical works. And I think the work by Anna Komnenyi is, is a good example. Um, the Alexit, as you know, is a work dedicated and written about Anna Komnenyi's father and the protagonist, um, Alexis I, who was emperor in the late 11th, early 12th century. Um, in the Alexiad, at the end of the book, we have an important account about the persecution of these radically dualistic heretics called the Bogomils. And this account was very important to Anna, so much so that she distorted the chronology of her history. She places the account at the end of a narrative, where she discusses the last deeds of her father, Alexius, even though the persecution happened years earlier. She uses this anachronism to argue that the father's fight against these dualist heretics, these Bogomils, was the pinnacle of his achievements. Fighting heretics was Alexius' ultimate deed. Ultimate in the sense that it is said to have been one of his last deeds. She calls it his um, last and crowning act. 
but also in the sense that his persecution of heretics points towards the Last Judgment. Emperor Alexius judged and condemned a proto-prophet, Basil the Bogomil, just as Christ was expected to judge and condemn false prophets and sinners at the Last Judgment. The public execution that Anna Komnene describes in graphic detail in the Alexiad, the public execution of Basil the Bogomil was an orchestrated performance with an eschatological trajectory. There was, if you, if you will, a dress rehearsal of the Last Judgment. Alexius was the typological precursor of Christ the Judge, which is a claim of imperial eschatology par excellence, which again we don't only find in apocalypses, but also in a related genre of historiography. Well, that's, that's really fascinating, and I wish we had more time to talk about this, but unfortunately we've uh, run out of time. Uh, Andras, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Jack. My pleasure. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. And I hope that all of you have found the conversation as riveting and informative as I have. Okay, Jack, thank you very much. That was excellent. Um, I very much liked the way Andras uh, defined apocalyptic literature, the way he spoke about the various examples that should guide us rather than uh, try and find a definition that covers it all. What did you think of that? Yeah, I thought it was a really good way of introducing and establishing essentially what apocalyptic literature is and the pitfalls that can come with, I guess, wanting to stick too closely to, you know, this is what something is or this is a defined, you know, category of of something. In modern scholarship, we do like our definitions, but it's very refreshing from time to time Mm. to have this reminder that, you know, not everything should be defined um, in in an absolute way. I very much enjoyed his comparison of uh, the Byzantine Empire with the Reformation or the way apocalyptic tradition worked in the Byzantine uh, Empire with the Reformation. what about that? How, how how did you feel about this comparison? Yeah, I thought it was very I thought it was very interesting his uh, comparison with the Reformation as well, and how I guess the the differences that he really brought out in terms of the mindsets between like uh, Western Christendom and the Byzantine Empire, of where you had uh, Western reformers and how they're uh, and even like pre reformers, like pre-Reformation reformers, and how they had their minds set in a particular way in regards to um, the institution of the church and various other things, and how the Byzantine Empire was sort of a, or Byzantine approaches to ecclesiastical uh, policy or or like church governance or, or discipline or reformation were almost... Not completely opposite, but they had different emphases in regards to what was considered, um, you know, to be inviolable. So, for example, how Andrash was talking about how in the Byzantine sort of context, it was not considered the the church was not wrong or the church was, the institution was not wrong, but it was... The, the emperors were expendable, but not the uh, the institution, which mm. is exactly the opposite w- to what happened with the uh, Western uh, Reformation. Yeah. I thought that was really interesting. These these 
Orthodox priests in the East had seen way too many emperors to to be, you know, sensitive to to them. Mm. The institution was above everything. Yeah, it made me think as well, you know, in terms of East West, and also in terms of the dualism that he mentioned. How th- there wasn't always a clear division between good and evil, but lots of, um, you know, levels of grey in Mm. between. We are used to thinking in terms of um, Star Wars, light and darkness, Mm. you know. If only there was one Darth Vader to explain it all. But it doesn't really happen like that all of the time. It made me think, for people of my generation... To think in terms of black and white, it almost makes sense. Like you used to have the Cold War. Mm. The good guys this side, the bad guys that, uh, you know, the bad guys that side. And it, it doesn't really matter at this stage to, to explain which is your chosen side. It was important that the difference was clear. These days, however, if you were to think in such dualist terms, I wonder... Can you really find the perfect good forces on one side and the perfect bad forces on the other? It's We are going through such a period of grey. I mean, obviously, we're not experts in that area, but I couldn't help uh, thinking that this is where we go in, in terms of religion, in terms of politics. This is the path of grey that we are walking on. Yeah, I, th- I think it's interesting. And um, I know when uh, me and Andra sort of, we talked about this in the, uh, or we talked about this actually after the interview or before the interview, uh, is where you've got, I guess, in, say, modern scholarship, how it's not considered cool or chic to be, um, you know, to say, okay, the Catholic or the Byzantine writers writing against these heretics, okay, they actually, like, you know, there is some credence to what they were saying. And, like, it wasn't like they were just making things up to then just, you know, attack their enemies. Whereas there is some, no doubt, some truth to that, but it's not all, okay, we can just, you know, throw out, you know, these materials purely because they're from a polemical standpoint or they're from a standpoint of where it says, you know, the the church is righteous and these heretics are, are the evil ones. Like, I do, I do take your point where there is always, there are always shades of grey with, um, you know, you could say almost anything in life. Nothing is very um, straightforward as we would like it to be. Unless you go to the cinema, of yeah. course. <laughs> and then things are much, much simpler, isn't it, mm. you know? Yeah. Even just to, like, to take the uh, the Cold War example, even though, like, I was born in 96, so... You know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah pain. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. Yeah. People were still born at that yes. time. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even though, like, I didn't, uh, I didn't live through that period, and like, you can still say, like, okay, yes, you know, both sides did, you know, both sides did bad things. Both sides were not, you know, one side was not sent from heaven, and the other side from the devil. But at the same time, you wouldn't say, like, oh yes, I'd love to live under communism. Because communism is so great. Don't say bad words. (laughs) (laughs) And what about this um, reference to to theodicy? I found that very interesting. Um, 
the way he discussed evil. Soon I will be having um, in one of our other podcasts a discussion with David Constant about the the nature of evil in its uh, Jewish context. Mm. So what you were discussing with Andrash about Byzantine theodicy, I found really, really interesting as a kind of later episode of how people discuss the role of evil in their everyday life experience and in the political context that they uh, that is familiar to them. Mm. I think it was it was really interesting hearing him talking about that and how we also talked about apocalyptic narratives as well as sort of the description of heres- of heretics and various heresies how those used in the like society or in the culture come to be emblematic Say, for example, with heretics, how the heretics come to be emblematic of the premium, like, social, political, and theological evil. It's like, you know, if you want to know, like, you know, why evil exists, well, okay, we look at heresies, but then, like, you know, okay, they exist because they're inspired by Satan. And you have the the active work of the um, demonic in regards to heresies and sort of with um, the theodicy. In, with the apocalyptic, how there is the making of everyone as equal and how... That was very interesting. Mm. Yes, yes, please go on. Yeah. yeah, so you have where everyone is made equal, but... And I found it really interesting, Andrash's observation from uh, the text that he talked about where the people are all made evil, even or not all made evil, they're all made equal, and but the punishment for the sinner is that everyone is made equal so they actually they can't recognize themselves they're like you need that extra sense mm. um that that remaining um extra perceptual understanding that's going to help you appreciate the identity of the other person even if we if we all are reborn as 30 year old people yeah identical people mm. it's very Blade Runner, I thought, very futuristic in 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 many ways. Mm, I hadn't thought about the Blade Runner analogy, but that yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, <laughs> it's still your generation, right? Oh, uh, yeah, <laughs> get in there. Like when when was the original book written? Like the seventies or something? They, that's why yeah, I said yeah. the movie. Yeah, barely yeah, there. But I, I have read the book. I have read the book as well. I prefer the book personally to the movie, but yeah. That's what every good PhD student should say. And we should also conclude by saying that you are going to have the opportunity to work with uh, Andrash mm. and with uh, Christophe, uh, Erisman, yes. Christophe yeah. Erisman at the University of Vienna uh, during your Cotutel. Yes. So that's going to be like a really exciting opportunity. Yes, I'm very looking forward to it. Yeah, it'll be very a uh, great opportunity and I'm very thankful that I, I can have it. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, thank you very much for running this excellent uh, interview with Andras. I enjoyed it very, very much. I hope the audience enjoys it too. Uh, thank you. Me as well. Thank you for listening uh, to one more episode from Tales from the End of Time. We'll be back with more episodes soon. 